0: What you're about to hear is a lecture that René Girard gave at the 1992 annual conference of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion held at Stanford University. The theme of the talk is ethnocentrism. The talk has lost none of its pertinence in the years since it was delivered. The Cornerstone Forum is pleased to make Professor Girard's remarks available. Thank you for your interest in these themes and in the work of the Cornerstone Forum in bringing them to the attention of a wider contemporary audience. René Girard. It's nice to be here. Ethnocentrism, the word, for the last three decades it's been massively used, and it was first popularized by the counterculture in the 60s, unquestionably but uh, it existed before, you know, and the word does, is not in the uh, Oxford English Dictionary of 1971, it is not in the French Dictionary Robert of 1981, but it is in the Webster of 1957. Therefore, it must be an American word, and most uh, coinages of this type are American in the 20th century. Um, by whom, exactly when, where, uh, I don't know, maybe some people know. But I think it is significant and it is a little bit of a problem in a way that it would be an American word, because the Americans don't like the word ethnology. And I think the American really shifted from ethnology to anthropology because of the possible racist connections. In order, in order not to give the slightest hint of racism, anthropology replaced ethnology. I don't know when, but uh, at the end of the 19th century or something, and. Uh, uh uh, ethnology, of course, the word ethnos in Greek can be translated by race, but it can also be translated by nation, by people, even by gender. In a way, it seems to designate every possible unit that uh, can differentiate associations of people from one another. And you know in French, for instance, the word uh, ethnology is still preferred to anthropology by some people. And the reason is obvious. If Levi-Strauss calls himself an ethnologist, it's not because he relishes the racial connotations, but it's because he was uh, raised as a philosopher. And to him, anthropology means the study of man, unconnected with field work, the philosophical study of man, what uh, Aristotle does. Obviously, the American anthropologists did not bother. I mean, the word seemed to be empty of meaning when anthropology was uh, appropriated by ethnologists. You know, a little bit like the shell of a dead uh, mollusk is occupied by another one which is uh, alive. Uh, You see what I mean? So, in a way, it's very strange that ethnocentrism would be an American coinage. But, so would it be a, a coinage from people who use ethnology? I don't think so. I think it's American. And the reason is that, you know, with the word ethnos, you can coin a new word which is ethnocentrism. But with the word anthropos, anthropology, you cannot coin the equivalent word anthropocentrism. Or someone used anthropocentrism yesterday. I think it's rule as a synonym for, uh, ethnocentrism. But the American anthropologists did not do that. And for obvious reasons, uh, the word is not differential enough. Uh, But there is another reason anthropocentrism, of course, is used not by philosophers, but by scientists. And philosophers can be treated as dead mollusks, but not scientists, you know? And you cannot usurp, you see? Therefore, you see this paradox. American anthropologists fight ethnocentrism, and they don't call themselves ethno. I don't know if my comments are valid, but there is a little something inconsequential here, which is amusing, not necessarily very significant. Because the word ethnology in uh, Lévi-Strauss, of course, has no uh, racial connotation. And ethnocentrism, we might believe that it has racial connotations, because very often its use in this country involves situation in which Ethnic in a sense, narrow sense of ethnos are involved, as in the relationship between the blacks and the whites, for instance. But if you look carefully, you will see that ethnocentrism means nothing more and nothing less than cultural centrism. No racial element is involved. If you say, for instance, even after two centuries, the blacks and the whites in this country see many things differently, you will say there are two main reasons. One may be the cultural w- background way back. The second one may be an experience for the last two centuries in this country, which is very different. But you're not going to say, anthropologists will refuse to say, that this difference in vision is due to racial differences, either in the blacks or in the white, which would be racism. You, see, you, you have to assume if you want, that these, this ethnocentrism is potentially, could be potentially transcended by non-racist culture and that it is cultural-centered, that it has nothing to do with race, even if it involves racial uh, uh, views as its objects. You see what I mean? So therefore, just as ethnology means nothing more, nothing less than anthropology in English. Ethnocentrism, even in English, means nothing more and nothing less than cultural centrism. I'm speaking here from the point of view of how the anthropologists uh, have been uh, using the word, you see, which has a a certain importance. So where does ethnocentrism come from? I think it's obvious i i think uh, the model is a psychological one uh ethnocentrism was invented by American anthropologists sometime at some time in the twentieth century, but long before the counterculture and the model i think is a psychological one and it's egocentrism egocentrism is a neologism too which was invented by psychologists to sound more technical. And if you have an individual self-centeredness, which you can call egocentrism, why not a collective self-centeredness that you will call ethnocentrism? I would assume that this is the history, the real history of the word, but that uh, uh, it's a speculative history on my part. It's not based on too much. And of course, there have been two great uses of the word. There is the professional anthropological use of the word until maybe 1965, 1970, I don't know, in which, during which anthropo-ethnocentrism is used as an adjunct and a supplement, and in a way, the subjective part of the anthropologist experience. A professor must make his students aware of their ethnocentrism in order to facilitate their acquisition and understanding of anthropological knowledge. Anthropo- ethnocentrism was invented, in other words, within the context of anthropologists who believed in what they were doing and who felt that they could uh, elaborate a, an objective knowledge. Ethnocentrism then was a little bit the equivalent of uh, in physics, you know, the idea that the observer is part of the game and that we can take his participation into account. We can do such things that we can reach nevertheless a kind of objectivity. And uh, in order to confirm this definition, which is not mine, which is that of the anthropologist. I'm going to quote the definition, the formal definition of ethnocentrism in a 1961 textbook of Edward Norbeck, which was used at Stanford, I think, because I bought it secondhand at Stanford. And it's entitled Religion in Primitive Society. There were still textbooks in 1961 about religion in primitive societies. Um, Now, today, religion in primitive society in some departments has completely disappeared. It's not even a valid notion. (laughs) So, Professor Norbeck says this, ethnocentrism is an excessive centering. I will go back to the word excessive. An excessive centering of ideas and values around those of one's own culture so that the customs of people of different culture are depreciated and regarded as amusing, ridiculous, inferior, unworthy of serious consideration, immoral, and Um, animal-like. Professor Norbeck, to to a certain extent, is making what are still the right noises from the contemporary standpoint, the multicultural standpoint. Norbeck still speaks, though, of primitive religion. He has the word in his title, and primitive with us is a taboo word now, bad, bad, bad word, and uh, but he makes reservations about its use. He says that it can be used, the word can be used with ethnocentric connotations. These reservations would not be enough today probably to earn him the imprimatur of the uh, right people, but maybe he would be granted extenuating circumstances, because he was writing in such a, a dark age, you know, um, the late 50. <clears throat> now many people who use ethnocentrism today as a weapon against anthropological knowledge feel that the idea, as well as the word, was invented you know, during the counterculture or a little after maybe. And of course, it's not true. Cultural self-centeredness is, in a way, the Western idea par excellence and it appears centuries (coughs) before the word ethnocentrism is used. If there is an enlightened word for ethnocentrism, it's the word prejudice, préjugé. <clears throat> something which is prejudged, which is judged ahead of time. Préjugé is a beautiful word, as a matter of fact, much more complex than he- ethnocentrism because it implies the very modern idea of a system of representation which functions in spite of yourself. When you think you're judging something, you have already prejudged it. You see what I mean? As soon as you put the words apart, you see that it's much better Heideggerian in uh, the language of the Enlightenment than uh, current Heideggeries. You see what I mean? And uh, if you look at the great literature of the Enlightenment, you can see that it is it is different from Professor Norbeck's textbook, but only because it's a very witty satire of ethnocentrism. The Conte philosophique, the philosophical tale, seeks to understand are ethnocentric propensities by having such people as Persian aristocrats in Montesquieu, Lettre persan, or American Indians visit Paris and discover immediately that these people are dreadfully ethnocentric, you know. They they regard their city as the navel of the universe, which it is not, of course, and they are really dreadful provincialists. The only difference is is in the style, you know, and for all those people who think, who want to believe with Stanley Fish and other enemies of the literary canon that almost any writing of the 20th century, and that would include textbooks, necessarily can compete with Voltaire and Montesquieu. Well, these people should better not compare the textbook of Professor Northbeck with Montesquieu and Voltaire, you know. And Montesquieu's famous question, comment peut-on être Persan?" how can one be a Persian, of course suggests more about ethnocentrism than five textbooks by Professor Norbeck. But the comparison is unfair, because professor, if Professor Norbeck had written in the 18th century, he would not have had a tenure committee. And... Uh, His tenure committee, if he wrote like Montesquieu, would tell him that he's not doing serious anthropology. The word serious is the important one. Our style is serious, which means that it reflects the bureaucratic mind that rules our universities and therefore our ambitions. We have effects of style, but they are, uh, uh, they consist in using the right words at the uh, right place. And what about the period before the Enlightenment? In France, you know, the most famous attack against Western ethnocentrism, because it's always Western ethnocentrism, which is attacked, was written at least one century and a half before Montesquieu and Voltaire. And of course, it is Montaigne's famous essay on the cannibals. And Montaigne already contains the entire constellation of arguments, attitudes, concepts, you know, and even pet peeves that uh, uh, characterize uh, the current use of uh, ethnocentrism, including a dash of anti-Western spice, you know, that spice that today has lost its flavor because of being used so massively, I would say, exclusively in compulsory publishing. Um, Too much of it will destroy the taste of anything. Not without justice, Montaigne, but a little bit one-sidedly, compares the cannibalism of South American Indians with the religious wars raging in France at the time of his writing. And he concludes, of course, that it is less immoral, immoral for human beings to eat the flesh of dead enemies than to torture live neighbors under the spur of uh, religious fanaticism. The Indians Montaigne was really writing about belonged to a most spectacularly cannibalistic culture, the Tupinamba of northeastern Brazil, one of the first great South American people to become uh, extinct. Montaigne knew practically nothing about these people, but he had met two of them in Rouen, where they were uh, more or less in exhibition. And, uh, of course, if you look closely at the cannibalism, you, could, you can see that these dead enemies were not dead to start with. And they were neighbors, just as in the case of the people tortured by the neighbors of the Montaigne. And they were tortured for religious reasons, because this cannibalism was a ritual. As a matter of fact, it's a ritual which has been described at length by five or six French explorers who are contemporary of Montaigne and who describe the, the ritual is very disturbing because it's obviously a means to make these uh, people the object of universal hatred. And then they were just uh, as tortured, as mutilated, and finally eaten as the uh, neighbors of Montaigne. So his counter-example is not really a very good one. But Montaigne is good enough rhetorically so that he doesn't mention anything about that cannibalism. But just like a modern publisher, it's his title. It's practically only in the title and in the sentence I quoted you. Therefore his publishing methods are very much 20th century methods. And it's typical of the world in which we live. Now you're going to tell me, but you believe all this, you know, this cannibalism and so forth? Aren't you the victim of ethnocentricity? Uh, Because these French explorers were just like you, and they believe that you are caught in a circle of ethnocentricity. It's quite possible. But let's take another one beside Montaigne. You know, there is one named Jean de Lery. And Jean de Lery was the prisoner of the Tupinamba. And uh, he wrote his memoirs, of course, when he came back. And unlike Montaigne, he had lots of things to say. And he had things so striking, you know, that he described them at great length. And we have these texts, which were published, by the way, by republished in the 60s by Metro, and in a way against the Sartre school, which is part of contemporary debate on ethnocentrism already. So, you're going to, was he a great uh, ethnocentric observer? Probably there were ethnocentric features in his observations, but if we look at his ideology, even though he was a prisoner of the Tupinamba, even though he doesn't mince his words, because he's like a contemporary man, you know, he loves the spectacle of violence, and he knows it's going to excite his readers. In spite of that, he, he also thinks like Montaigne. And the description of the Tupinamba for him is maybe out of sympathy for the uh, people he describes, but primarily because he wants to teach a lesson or two to his countrymen. He's just as ethnocentric as you and me. Therefore, if he's unbelievable, why should I believe the people of the counterculture who tell me that he's worth nothing? Their criteria, <clears throat> their criteria are exactly the same. And if you really look <clears throat> in the 16th century, you will see that the attitude of Montaigne and the attitude of Jean de Léry is still a little bit unusual in the sense that it's an elite attitude. And it's a highly intellectual attitude, but it is spreading very fast. And in the 18th century, when Voltaire, or when the Enlightenment picks it up, it is already the cliché that it is today. It is everybody's attitude. And you find it even in the writings against the Enlightenment. Therefore, it is not even characteristic of the Enlightenment. And you will find it everywhere it is practically impossible to find any other attitude beginning with the 18th century. There is some good reason, for instance, to say that uh, anti-ethnocentrism um, is the s- most specific feature of the modern age. Because if you go back before, indeed there are fewer traces, you know. The great division between ancient, medieval on the one side and modern on the other is a good one. People become modern when they are beginning to fight ethnocentrism. Cultures create modernity when they are beginning to fight ethnocentrism. Therefore, it is proper to a certain extent but to say and I, I thought I was the first to say it, but it's impossible, and Toby's paper showed me that it's already been said, that uh, anti-ethnocentrism is the specific ethnocentrism of uh, our culture, which is being said today, which is uh, being said today with a special twist. you know, it's being said by the school, which uses ethnocentrism in a very different way from the way I have uh, mentioned so far. Because Professor Norbeck, uh, even if his writing is a little different from uh, Montesquieu and Voltaire, he's still in that line, you know, that goes from Montaigne to the Enlightenment. He's trying to educate his students. In other words, to undermine their ethnocentrism by making them aware of it in order to communicate a more objective knowledge, which will be based on openness to alien uh, cultures, which is very important, and it should not be dismissed. Since the 60s, ethnocentrism has been used in a slightly different way. Ethnocentrism has been used against anthropological knowledge. Very suddenly, uh, in the middle 60s, you see uh, ethnocentrism being... uh, Uh, used as an objection to all kind of observation which uh, bears on foreign cultures. You cannot know a foreign culture because we are all too ethnocentric to understand each other as culture, and we would uh, better give up. And um, the question is, where does that come from? You know, it's a mood that changes. But I think we must think of uh, uh, we must think of a great paradoxical thinker who very often is a contradictory, self-contradictory thinker who uh, does something to ethnocentrism long before the word was invented. And uh, of course, this uh, writer is Nietzsche. Nietzsche is very special. Nietzsche, from a rational point of view, contradicts himself ceaselessly. Because Nietzsche can be more anti-ethnocentric than any Enlightenment uh, writer. He makes fun of them for being fooled by their ethnocentrism. In other words, he deconstructs society more radically, we would say today than uh, his predecessors. But at the same time, the cultures he loves, the culture he approves of are the most ethnocentric ever. Therefore, the only unity of his word is aesthetic. It's an irresponsible aestheticism. He approves of the cultures which being most ethnocentric are also the most vigorous, the most creative from a cultural religious and artistic viewpoint, regardless, of course, of what they do to their neighbor. In a way, uh, the worse they treat their neighbors, the better, because it is one further proof of uh, their extreme value as culture. For instance, with Nietzsche, we have the beginning of what has become uh, uh, an absolute must today, which is the praise of archaic rather than classical Greece. Archaic Greece is admirable because it is so totally ethnocentric. What Archaic Greek does not understand, it considers insignificant. What it understands, it assimilates to its own customs. See Herodotus, for instance, on foreign gods. Socrates is bad because he introduces rationalism and universality, which of course implies the type of self-discipline putting oneself realizing that oneself is not the center of the universe, the middle empire, as China is, but only a small piece of the world. And rationalism happens when, of course, when Greek imperialism is uh, finally uh, defeated and has to move back after the great triumphs of the 5th century. Or if you look at the way Nietzsche treats the Renaissance, you see, that it's the... Self-confidence of the culture, which is the opposite of self-doubt, which is the opposite of the permanent modern malaise, you know, which uh, uh, which is praised by him. So the problem with Nietzsche, Nietzsche is admirable and so forth, and one should consider him as the uh, genius enfant terrible that uh, we have. But the the dangerous thing is that he becomes a model and that the people who use him very often are not as aware as he is of the self-contradiction implies in what he says. And I think one could uh, take as an example a, an anthropologist uh, who has had enormous influence in our world, and uh, who is Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead can celebrate at the same time, you know, the marvelous adjustment to a totally self-centered ethnocentric culture which doesn't know anything about otherness, therefore people feel perfectly at ease inside of it. While at the same time, she condemns the West for being uncomfortable with itself. In other words, for trying to understand (laughs) these marvelous cultures. She can condemn the West for being too ethnocentric while praising the native culture for being infinitely more ethnocentric and the West. And I would say this type of attitude in some ways is present with us. The counterculture and its inheritors have tend to move into two several directions and not to be aware of it themselves. It has no bad consequences much of the time. For instance, in the case of what we call today multi Culturalism. Multiculturalism should not be a, an academic theory, but it's perfect as an ideology, which is really an ideology of coexistence, not between cultures, because these cultures died long ago, but between competing ethnic groups, which call back, which cling to the shreds of their cultural past, which are only a few symbols, really, against each other. In multiculturalism, anti-ethnocentrism is still there in the multi, and culturalism, of course, is the, the self-assertion. The idea of the self-assertion of culture is a very interesting one, but it is pretty amazing that the university would swallow this as a new form of knowledge. They were universalists, you know, they believed in um, um, the unity of culture uh, as a historical force when the world was still divided now that the world is very fast turning into one culture when in fact we already are a single culture no one believes in it everybody pretends that it does not exist and that we have something else I think there I'm moving pretty much in the same direction that uh, Toby uh, did yesterday. And I repeat, I'm not against multiculturalism as such, which in a situation of cultural impoverishment and the coexistence of these many uh, uh, groups is probably the only ideology available. What I find a little bit appalling is that the university would uh, uh, would have no other theory of culture than what the ideology makes available today at uh, every moment, you know. And I think the difference between our time, I made fun of Professor Norbeck a little bit, but to conclude, I would try to show that uh, there is more future in what Professor Norbeck is doing, I think, than what we may be doing now. Because Professor Norbeck is still aware of the contradiction that today we do not see or we hide under vociferations, you know, of self-assertions. The word excessive, do you remember that word excessive that he uses in his definition of ethnocentrism? Ethnocentrism is an excessive centering. So what does that word excessive? You can approach that word excessive from the suspicious view of today. You can say Professor Norberg, He's a white male. He's a professor in an American university. He wants to give up a little bit of his ethnocentrism, but he wants to retain some for himself. And it doesn't tell which part, because it doesn't tell how we could measure ethnocentrism. If ethnocentrism can be excessive, as Professor Norbeck says, it means that there can also be too little ethnocentrism or just the right amount of ethnocentrism. In other words, Professor Norbeck is trying to quantify ethnocentrism. And in this attempt, instead of trying to think dialectically, he's an American professor of the 60s, and he's a good positivist, And he thinks, oh, we're going to have experiments of everything. And we're going to measure even ethnocentrism. And then I will have a little thing, and I will see exactly how much ethnocentrism is good for you and how much is bad for you. (laughs) Of course, this is ridiculous. You see what I mean? Because ethnocentrism is the ethnocentrism of the other is entirely bad. And the ethnocentrism. Your own is entirely good because you don't see it or you feel there is less of it. But the word excessive shows that unlike Nietzsche, and is much less brilliant than Nietzsche, of course, Professor Norbeck sees the contradiction that if you are for ethnocentrism in the case of primitive cultures, and he says after that, that ethnocentrism is good for you, that if you don't have some of it, you know, you don't, uh, you cannot... Uh, uh, It should be good for the Western society. So he doesn't feel ready to attack ethnocentrism all the way when it is Western and to support it all the way when it is non-Western. Why? Because he's dealing with so-called scientific concepts. The concept of ethnocentrism was developed by looking not at America only, but you go to England and you find that the English are... England center. then you go to France and you find that the French are France centered, and then you continue, you go to Polynesia and you find the same thing everywhere. So ultimately you have a concept which is not polemical, ethnocentrism, if it is used correctly, but which at least has a little scientific pull. Professor Norbeck would use all these expressions, you know, that were fashionable. When I first came to this country, and today no one uses, because they show that people hate to contradict themselves and that it's easy to contradict oneself in the human sciences, you know, in order to scapegoat the other one. Professor Norbeck would say that he doesn't want to paint himself into a corner. No one paints himself into a corner anymore because we have paint all over the place and we don't pay any attention to it because we have decided that the principle of contradiction was not valid anymore. But I would submit that without principle of contradiction, there is no academic life. We'd better go our separate ways because nothing can unite us. And I think that uh, anti-ethnocentrism in the West is not another form of ethnocentrism as long as it tries to be rigorous. in. its use of concepts, self-discipline in terms of logic, which is what we need a little bit more. And here, I would like to end uh, with a quote of Nietzsche, which is one of his most delightful. What, in the end, has really conquered the Christian God? Christian morality itself. The concept of truthfulness taken more and more strictly. The confessional subtlety of the Christian conscience translated and sublimated into the scientific conscience, into intellectual cleanliness at any price. It contradicts not only the double contradictions that I mentioned in him, but it contradicts his whole thought. And he says, The concept of truthfulness taken more and more strictly. The confessional subtlety of the Christian conscience translated and sublimated into the scientific conscience, into intellectual cleanliness at any price. I love that, at any price, you know. (laughs) He says all this comes from uh, Christianity and the spirit of science, you know, which is the spirit of truth at times for Nietzsche. And there it is, because he says, what in the end has really conquered the Christian God? Christian morality itself. It's Christianity itself which finally got rid, rid us of the Christian gods. I would change only one thing, say, riding us of the God of violence. You see what I mean? And the niche would be perfect. You have to modify. But he, he's still in an 1890 mood in the sense that Without Christianity, we could never have gotten rid of a Christian God because it's a type of reasoning, scientific reasoning that Christianity made possible and in anthropology that today is destroying religion. It's comparative religion. It's the comparative religion which I, myself, practice in a completely cavalier way. You see, since I can shift principles practically at every sentence. But Professor Norbeck doesn't want and is excessive is, well, if we can quantify, there won't be any contradiction anymore because there'll be a little bit, le- a little bit here and a little bit less. There you can see that quantification in the social science is a substitute for dialectical thought. Dialectical thought being another form of enlightenment optimism. I think Nietzsche is beyond all that, seeing that Christianity is more than Hegel believes, is absolutely central, and that uh, the modern spirit doesn't add too much, that it's its own inner development, you see. Uh, But in that one quote, I think you have the entire thinking of Nietzsche, and something that goes beyond, I think, the contradiction. If you take what he says about truth in a positive way, and you have to, since he's glad to get rid of that God, He uses it in a positive way there. He said that as an idea of objective knowledge, it is unbelievable. And it must come, of course, from that extreme, that passion, that sick passion for truth. The word sick is there, but nevertheless, he's full of admiration. That scientific objectivity is the subtlety of the Catholic confessional transposed to science, you see what I mean? And that the desire for self-consistency and refusal of self-contradiction is that spirit and will disappear when that spirit disappears. I think that's Nietzsche at his greatest. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, Please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word.org. Thank you for your interest in our work.